Well, this evening we look together to the truths of God's Word as they're summarized for us in Lord's Day 7 of our Catechism. You can find that on page 14 in the back of your Psalter hymnal. But before we read Lord's Day 7, I'd like to read with you from Micah chapter 7. Now, Micah prophesied to Israel, to the church of his age, uh, before the exile of the northern kingdom. So he prophesied to both Judea in the south and then to the ten tribes in the north. Chapter 7 is the end of his book. And it begins with a lament for the sins of his people. And really throughout his book he calls them to account for the sins that they have embraced. For the rebellion that they have uh, openly adopted against God. But then in the midst of the chapter he shifts gears. Confessing that his confidence is not in men, it's not in himself. His confidence is in God. And he knows that despite the unworthiness of God's people, the Lord will redeem those who are his. And so he concludes with this song of confidence that God will redeem, that God will deliver those who are his. Woe is me. For I am like those who gather summer fruits, like those who glean vintage grapes. There is no cluster to eat of the first ripe fruit which my soul desires. The faithful man has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net, that they may successfully do evil with both hands. The prince asks for gifts. The judge seeks a bribe. And the great man utters his evil desire. So they scheme together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman and your punishment comes. Now shall be their perplexity. Do not trust a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. For son dishonors father, daughter rises against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Therefore I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light. I will see his righteousness. Then she who is my enemy will see, and shame will cover her, who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her. Now she will be trampled down like mud in the streets. In the day when your walls are to be built, in that day the decree shall go far and wide. In that day they shall come to you from Assyria and the fortified cities, from the fortress to the river, from sea to sea, and mountain to mountain. Yet the land shall be desolate because of those who dwell in it and for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff the flock of your heritage who dwell solitarily in a woodland in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall put their hand over their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall crawl from their holes like snakes of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God. And shall fear because of you. 
Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. Amen. Amen indeed. Lord's Day 7 of our Catechism. Coming on the heels of Lord's Days 5 and 6, which show us that there is redemption. There is forgiveness for the misery of our sins, but only through a unique sacrifice. The one who is completely man and yet completely sinless and who also is fully God. The only one fulfilling that criteria is Jesus. That's what we saw. And so now Lord's Day 7 asks the logical question, are all men saved through Christ just as all men were lost through Adam? And the answer is no. Only those who are saved, who by true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all His blessings. So then what is true faith? True faith is not only a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in His Word is true, but it is also a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the Gospel that out of sheer grace earned for me by Christ, not only others but I too, have had my sins forgiven, have been made forever right with God and have been granted salvation. What then must the Christian believe? Everything God promises in His Gospel. That Gospel is summarized for us in the articles of our Christian faith. A creed beyond doubt and confessed throughout the world. Well, what are these articles? And then it lists the articles of faith that we find in the Apostles' Creed which we just confessed together. People of God beloved in Christ... There are a lot of wrong ideas about our Savior. Probably the most prevalent in our culture involve what He came to do and especially for whom He came to do it. Many are they who say that Jesus came to save everyone or at least everyone religious. They believe that Jesus' work on the cross saves everyone who is faithful to whatever they know about Jesus. So whether they're Christian or Muslim, Buddhist or animist, as long as they're being true to what they have perceived about God, then it's Jesus who ultimately saves them, even if they don't know the name of Jesus. That's what many people believe, sadly. Others believe that Jesus helps those who help themselves. That's a very American belief, isn't it? That Jesus takes over where we fall short. That he expects us to do our best and then he kind of paves over that which we don't quite get right. But probably the most common attitude toward Jesus in our culture is what I would call optimistic indifference. They don't really know how Jesus' life and death saves, nor do they really care. They simply believe it was effective in getting people to heaven. And it's effective, they believe, for everyone who isn't truly heinous 
in their sin. As long as you're pretty okay as a person, as long as you're not a murderer or a child abuser or a cannibal or a politician or something terrible like that, then you're going to get to heaven when you die and it's Jesus who does it. Now, of course, most of those folks think that Jesus is just one of many ways to get to heaven. He's just as valid as Mohammed or Vishnu or, or whatever. He's just one of many ways to get to God. And they believe that firmly because, well, you know, it just feels right. But it's foolishness. It's just as true as the fairy tales we heard as children and just as likely as those fairy tales to get us to heaven. Jesus is real. He's a real man who really came and really lived the perfect life and truly died the death that we deserved and very truly, factually rose up from the dead and ascended to heaven for the sake of those who are His. He is the one who factually, truly was anointed prophet, priest, and king by God the Father to be our Savior. He was named Jesus at the command of God Himself because the name Jesus, as we'll see in a few weeks, means the Lord saves. Despite what our culture may believe, Lord's Day 7 reminds us, crucially, that Jesus did not come to save all men or all religious people or everyone who does their best. Jesus came to save a faith filled people. And we need to understand that if we're to receive Him through faith. And so that's the theme that we consider this evening. Christ came to save a faith-filled people. And we must understand that because apart from faith we remain cut off from God and from all that is good. And so that's our first point. That faith provides the way to Christ Himself and all that He brought. Faith provides the way to Christ. Because Jesus did come with the goal of saving those who are lost. He came to deliver sinful men from their sin and from all the consequences that, that attach to sin. That was His purpose in humbling Himself to be born as one of us and to live among us. And that's great news because on our own we have no hope of being saved from sin. None at all. Micah's confession in chapter 7 of his book says a mouthful when he says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my case and executes justice for me. Did you catch that? That's a confession that every one of us could and should make. I will bear the indignation, the wrath, the consequence of sin from God until God intervenes, until God accomplishes salvation. Because I can't do it. I can't accomplish it. I can't fix the mess that I've created. Only Jesus, God Himself come in the flesh, is perfectly qualified to save sinful people. But He did not come with the intent of saving all. For one thing, no one would seek Jesus. No one would desire His salvation on their own. We heard Micah testify to the character of his fellow Israelites. There is no one upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. Every man hunts for his brother with his net that they may successfully do evil with both hands. 
They're not even satisfied to just dabble with evil. They want to do it with both hands. And so the prince asks for gifts. The judge seeks for a bribe. The great man utters his evil desire. They want to gather all the resources they can to be as evil as they possibly are able. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge, he says. And folks, that's not only true of ancient Israel. That is true of mankind as a whole. Whether born inside the church or born not knowing what the Bible is. That's the nature with which we are born. And so if God just left it up to us, we wouldn't even desire the good salvation that Jesus came to provide. So God resolved not to leave it up to us. He knew that we would be content to wallow in our sin. And so God Himself chose a remnant to be saved in grace. And He not only chose out those who would be His, but He led them every step of the way into that salvation. He caused to be revealed to us by the witness of His people and the preaching of the Gospel the truth about Jesus. He turned our hearts to hear that gospel, to really understand its truth and how it applies to us. And at the same time, He made us recognize that we have a need. That our sin separates us from God and that there is absolutely nothing we can do to fix that problem on our own. God provides at every step of the way, leading us to see our need and how Jesus fulfills that need. But then He doesn't automatically give to His people, to His chosen ones, the salvation that Jesus earned. God requires us to fulfill a condition of sorts before we can receive what Jesus accomplished. Now I say it's a condition of sorts. Because a condition sort of implies that we accomplish something, that we earn something. But you see, this is a condition that that God sets before us, and then He accomplishes it in us. He does everything that's necessary in us, gives us all the strength, gives us the motivation, imparts to us exactly what He demands of us. So it's a condition that God meets in us, through us, and yet we ourselves must act. We must obey by His power. And that condition is faith. By faith, We are able to see and to understand Jesus as He truly is. By faith, we enter into a unique relationship with Jesus so that we become His adopted brothers, co-heirs with Him of all the creation before God. At the same time, God causes Jesus to become our King. He's the one that we follow, the one that we obey. He unites us to Jesus as our brother, as our King, and also as our mediator. He's the one who stands between us, sinful men and women, and the holy God. Providing all that we need that we might have communion with God. Ensuring that the Lord hears our prayer, meets our need. And the Father listens. The Father receives us for the sake of Jesus. That's the amazing part. Because we have faith in Jesus, God counts us as forgiven. All of our sins being paid. He counts us as righteous, perfectly obedient, not because we were, but because Jesus was on our behalf. He counts us as holy, having no stain, no defect of sin. That's called imputation. God regards us in a certain way because of what Jesus did for us. God treats us in a particular way because of what Jesus did on our behalf. And all of that comes to us. 
entirely and only by faith. That's why Romans chapter 5 says, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have peace with God through Jesus, and we have access to that peace, access to that hope, only by faith. And that's unique. Faith provides the only way to Jesus. You'll hear folks talk about it being kind of like a wagon wheel. God's at the center, and we all start out on the outer rim. And Jesus is one of the spokes that leads to the hub, but there's other ways that lead to that hub. Folks, that is not only blasphemy, but it is a lie that will lead us into hell. There's only one spoke from that outer rim to the hub, and His name is Jesus. And we can receive Him, we can travel down that path only by faith. In Romans chapter 4, Paul says that God's promise, the promise that Abraham received, the promise that God's people throughout the ages have received, that promise is not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now that was true for Abraham, it was true for Moses, it was true for David, but it's also true for us. The promise that God will be our God and that we will be His people. The promise that our sins are forgiven and that we are made acceptable to God. The promise that God will care for us, provide us, hold us firm in His hand. With regard to all of it, the Apostle says, it is of faith that it may be according to grace. According to grace, we don't take any credit. We don't get any honor because God did it all. Yes, He calls us to have faith, but He even gives us the faith that we're required. And so every bit of the credit, every bit of the glory, and every bit of the confidence goes to God. Apart from Jesus, apart from faith, we are lost. But having faith in Jesus, we are not only saved, but we are given the greatest riches, the greatest promise, the greatest assurance that man has ever known. So the question that we must ask is, what is faith? That's the crucial question. Young people, if, if you understand none of the other lessons in the catechism season, please understand this one. Please take this one to heart. What is faith? What is this thing that joins us to Jesus? We must know that. And that leads to our second point of the evening. Faith is that which assents to the truth about Christ. Faith assents to the truth about Christ. To assent to something. To, to say, I believe it and I agree with it. Kids, I might ask you or, or somebody might ask you after church, do you want a piece of candy? And if you really believe that that person has the piece of candy and you want it, you would say yes, right? That would be assent, right? Well, faith begins with assent. God's people encounter the truths of God's Word about themselves and about Jesus. And they must know what those promises, what those truths are, knowledge, and they must believe that they're true. Knowledge and belief, that means assent. So that means that this faith, it's not just a blind thing. It's not just an empty hope. It rests on the foundation of facts. 
And that's downright contrary to the spirit of our age. The movers and shakers of the world in which we live, they say that truth is really flexible. I'm not talking about everybody in our culture, but the, the movers and shakers, the thinkers, the leaders. These folks, most of them claim that truth is not necessarily the same for everyone. They say what's true for me is not necessarily true for you. That truth is dependent on perspectives. It's dependent on feelings. The truth that you perceive depends entirely on your story and, and what's true for you might not be true for you. That's what our world says about truth. And if you don't believe it, just watch the news. See how easily our prominent politicians will look at a set of facts and argue for position A and then a year later, because it is convenient, will argue for position B, which is diametrically 180 degrees opposed to position A, using the same facts. They will twist the truth to their ends, to their purposes. Look at how so-called journalists in our age defend making up out of whole cloth stories making them out of absolute fiction, but claiming that the underlying ideas were truth and having no shame about doing so. It's happened in the New York Times, once a bastion of absolute truth. They make things up. They tell lies to convey what they regard as truth. How can lies serve the truth? But that's what the world does. On the contrary, our God says that truth never changes. Because the ultimate truth is found in Him. And our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What God reveals in His Word is absolutely true. Whether we believe it or not makes no difference. Whether we like it or not doesn't really matter. Regardless of how it makes us feel or how it impacts our situation... The truth that God reveals in His Word is 100% true. You can deny it. You can argue against it. You can find pundits on YouTube that will try their best to make mincemeat of it, though they will always fail. But the truth of God's Word always stands, and at the end of time we will stand before God and He will hold us to account for what we did with the truth that He has revealed to us. And men will in your presence, deny the truth of God's Word. They'll twist His Word. They'll say that His claims are false. They'll find ways to, to convince people around them either that that Word is not true or that what it clearly says does not mean what it seems to mean. But that doesn't change the truth that God reveals to us. It's still true. And if you want to be saved through Jesus, you must recognize that truth is real and you must receive the truth that God has revealed to you. Now, of course, that means that we need to, re to understand what God has revealed to us, doesn't it? We have been blessed beyond all measure because we've been given not only the Bible, but the ability to read and understand the Bible. Now, of course, we can understand the words. Only God can make us truly understand it in our hearts. But please understand the blessing you've been given and do not scorn it. Heard of an interesting phenomenon last week. It's called beg packing. Fairly entitled rich kids that go uh, 
through foreign countries backpacking so that they can see the world, but they don't take any money, they don't take any resources, they beg on street corners to get the money that they need to, uh, to feed themselves, to house themselves, to clothe themselves. They grew up in an affluent culture. They had all the advantages, but they chose to be beggars and to beg their way around the world. That's foolish. Just as foolish as having the treasure of God's Word, the, the foundation of all truth, and saying, I don't want it. I'm going to cast it off. I'm going to discover truth for myself. Well, if you start without this foundation, you cannot find the truth. You cannot discern between right and wrong, true and false. It's hard to overemphasize the importance of knowing what God has revealed because unless we know the truth, then faith is impossible. That's why preaching is so powerful. By the preaching of His Word, God imparts the truth to our hearts. Through the Holy Spirit, He applies that Word and forms faith within us. That's also why it's important to be committed to His Word. As individuals, we need to be digging into the Scriptures daily. As families, we need to be not only just reading a brief, a brief devotional. No, we need to be reading God's Word and studying it and discussing it together and applying it to our, our lives. As a church, we must be committed to teaching our children and teaching one another God's Word continuously. Because if we don't know what God has revealed, we can't have faith in the One whom He sent. And having learned what God has revealed, true faith assents to it. It believes what he's revealed. It's not enough to know what God's word says. We must believe that those facts are true. That sounds obvious. But brothers and sisters, it's not. There are countless men and women in our world today who study scripture, who know scripture, and who don't believe a word of it. Some of them teach in our colleges and universities. They know the Old Testament intricately in the original language. And they don't believe that what's described there actually happened. They don't believe that Adam was a real man. They don't believe that the flood actually covered the earth. They don't believe, they don't believe, they don't believe what it says. And so they teach a lie. Young people hear this. I don't care how educated that person who stands in the front of the classroom is or that person that you see on the internet seems to be. How impressive their speech. How persuasive their talk. If they deny what God's Word clearly says, they are liars. And they're seeking to lead you out of the kingdom of God and into hell. Period. True faith believes what God has said and not just some of it. Our catechism wisely says, What then must a Christian believe? Everything God promises in his gospel. True faith is not only a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in his word is true. That means we have to believe, we need to believe that Jesus is truly man and truly God. But we also need to believe that God made the world in six days out of nothing because He said it. We need to believe that He destroyed the world with a flood because that's what God testifies to having done. We need to believe that Jesus was born of a virgin because God spoke and acted and it was so. We must believe even when men scoff and scorn and say it couldn't be. 
And we especially must believe those promises of the gospel. That doesn't just mean we believe, I, I believe Jesus died for sinners. It means we believe it is true that God the Father Almighty is the maker of heaven and earth. That Jesus was born of a virgin, that he lived the perfect life and died the perfect death and rose from the dead after three days. That we believe that the Holy Spirit has come and has gathered his church and continues to work in the hearts of men. We need to believe everything that is confessed in that Apostles' Creed and everything that that confession implies. Everything about God's sovereignty, everything about Jesus' birth and sacrifice, resurrection and ascension, everything about the Holy Spirit and the eternal hope that He imparts to us. We must believe all of it and we must believe it wholeheartedly. Not because I said you need to, not because the catechism says you need to, but because God has revealed it in His Word and God never ever lies. 1 Peter 1 says that through Jesus, we believe in God who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Not in me, not in the church, not in the creed, but in God. We don't believe out of tradition. We don't believe out of empty hope. We don't believe out of misplaced loyalty. We believe because we have encountered the truth of God which cannot and must not be denied. But faith involves something else. We must know God's Word. We must believe God's Word. But we also must assent or accept that God's Word is true for us. And that's our final point. We must accept new life from Christ. A catechism says in our answer 21, true faith is not only a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in His Word is true. But it is also a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the Gospel that out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, not only others, but I also have had my sins forgiven, have been made forever right with God, and have been granted salvation. I also, I too... Understand, this trust, this assurance of which we speak, it's not merely wishful thinking which lacks a basis in reality. That's why belief in the truth comes first. We can trust Jesus only if we know who He is and what He has done and we believe that it truly, factually is so. Nor is this faith, is this... Uh, assurance, an act of merit that earns us something with God. Jesus doesn't save us as a reward for the good work of trusting Him. Not at all. It is Christ who has done it all and it is in Him that we trust. The trust of our faith is real. We are called to believe firmly that God's promises, all of them, are true. God said He would forgive you on the basis of what Jesus did. Hearing that promise. Hearing that promise, we must believe what Romans 5 says. God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved through wrath, but from wrath through Him. True faith takes that passage and says, that's true for me.
God demonstrated his love toward me in that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me much more than having now been justified by his blood. I shall be saved from wrath through him. This is a trust that rests not on me, not on my steadfastness, but on what Jesus did for me. It's not about how good or how sinful I've been. It's not about how strong or weak my faith is or how much of the Bible I know. It's not about who my family is or what church I belong to or what things I've done. It's not about me at all. It's about Jesus. And folks, if we're to trust in Jesus the way faith demands that we do, that must come from the Holy Spirit. Because we won't do it on our own. We just won't. Only if God works in our hearts, only if He imparts that faith to us, will we trust Jesus as our Savior. The trust of true faith is the trust that Micah expressed in the passage that we read. The trust that confesses, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over the transgression of the remnant of His heritage? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. That is what we must believe through Christ in order that we might receive forgiveness in Him. Our world, especially our culture, has made a virtue out of doubt. But it's not just our age. Some 2,000 years ago, Pilate asked, what is truth? He could have been speaking today in any of our courts, in any of our legislatures, in any of our classrooms. Throughout the ages, the sinful world has embraced doubt and uncertainty. And there are places for doubting. There are times for uncertainty. When we're dealing with men, doubt is not a bad policy. As Micah himself said, do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Micah spoke from experience. He knew that men deceive, that men can't always be trusted. Uncertainty is not out of place when you're doing a science experiment, right kids? We should always hold those hypotheses in kind of a a bit of skepticism. Always testing them, checking them, seeing if maybe there's an exception. But doubt, uncertainty, these are not okay when we stand before the promises of God. When we doubt Scripture, we doubt the faithfulness of God. When we doubt the faithfulness of God's promises, we exalt ourselves as being judges over God. And that we must never ever do. Instead of questioning God, we must trust Him. Real faith accepts new life from Christ. True faith says of Jesus with Romans 4, He was delivered up because of my offenses. He was raised because of my justification. Faith doesn't question whether Jesus' work was truly effective. It trusts that it was. That he did everything necessary. True faith says with David in Psalm 26, I have trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. No question, no doubt but confident that because I'm trusting in the Lord, I shall not slip because it depends on Him, because it rests in Him. True faith says with Micah, I will look to the Lord, I will wait for the God of my salvation. 
my God will hear me. And again, he will bring me forth to the light. I will see his righteousness. True faith accepts that what Jesus did is enough. We don't doubt him. We don't question him. We don't hold him lightly like we would a scientific hypothesis. But we trust that what he has said is true. What he has done is faithful. And what he has promised will come to pass. Beloved, Christ came to save a faith-filled people. There is no other way to receive the salvation he has accomplished, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, you must believe everything God has revealed about who he is, about who we are, and about what Jesus has done to reconcile us to God. Folks in our age believe many wrong things about Jesus, but we know the truth. God sent his Son. Jesus came to save all who have faith in Him. May our faith in Him never waver. And may we be confident that He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, Your faithfulness is higher than the heavens and broader than the sea. May You lead us by the strength of Your Holy Spirit to trust in You completely, to doubt, it, doubt Your Word never, and to stand firm with joy in the assurance of salvation through Christ. And may you be glorified as we tell others where our hope is found. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.